0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: As we prepare for the Independence Day weekend, there's someone I want you to meet. His name is Nathan Law, a leader of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. And in his young life, he already has endured prison and is living in exile in London as China continues its brutal crackdown on freedom fighters in Hong Kong. We saw another turn of the wheel the other day when the government shut down Hong Kong's largest pro-democracy newspaper, jailing its publisher and several journalists. This happened after our conversation. So enjoy your weekend with family and friends. God knows how much we all have been looking forward to that. But I hope you also find time to listen to Nathan Law and reflect on the sacrifices he and his compatriots are making to win the freedom and democracy we Americans too often take for granted. Nathan Law, it's so good to see you. Welcome. Welcome to the Axe Files. What, uh, thank you for your time at the Institute of Politics.
2: Um, no, thank you so much, David, for the invitation. Uh, it's been um, a meaningful quarter for me. Um, this is uh, the first time that I have a teaching role to, to uh, instruct students about my activism and stories of Hong Kong. So I, I think that also means a lot to me.
1: Yeah, I suspect you've been doing a lot of teaching without even calling it teaching. But I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Look, there's so much to talk about relative to Hong Kong, to China, and to the state of democracy in the world. But before we get to all of that, I, I want to put your own journey in context here. So let's start from the beginning. You you were born uh, not in Hong Kong, but in the People's Republic of China. Tell me about those early years and what tell me about your folks and what prompted them to move to hong kong
2: yeah so my my father was actually in hong kong when i was born in mainland china he swam to hong kong in late 70s because um there was prevasive famine in mainland china his uh, village didn't really have food for people to to survive um so the only way for them to get alive is to travel across um the rivers that um separate hong kong from china and also um, that was a very turbulent trip um, a lot of uh, my father's generation they didn't make it they just died on the open sea so he was the lucky guy that um, managed to go through that um that journey and by then uh, there was a policy from the british government uh it's called Touch bay policy um basically if you um arrive the city center um even though like you smuggled into hong kong you could still get the citizenship um so my father did that and um he met my mother later and when i was born in hong kong in 1993 we reunion in uh when i was born in china in 1993 we reunion in hong kong in 1999 when i was 6 so that was um how i managed to come from mainland china to hong kong
1: and your family you know i think there is Sort of this casual image of Hong Kong as a very prosperous place. Yours was a very working class existence. Your family struggled to make ends meet, and so on. Talk a little bit about that. What life in Hong, your early life in Hong Kong was like.
2: I lived through basically through my life in Hong Kong in um, public housing. My father was a constructor. Constructor uh, was a builder. My mother was a cleaner. We are. Uh, a typical working-class family that um, there were some occasions we had to rely on government's funding subsidies to um, put food on table. So it hasn't been um, uh, an affluent background for me. And uh, most of the time when uh, your your parents are living through those conditions, they want you to be a provider. They want stability. Um, that, that was uh, how they teach to me, um, try to get a good job, um, try to make, uh, provide for the family. But eventually I, I did something that they could have never expected. Um, I stepped into, atif- step into the arena of activism and eventually to politics. And they were very worried when they first learned that I was on the protest sites, I was becoming a student leader. But that was the rest of the story
1: let's flesh it out just a little bit more your your folks uh ultimately separated so your mom really in many ways raised you is that fair to say
2: yeah so um my parents separated when i was in high school so um it was really tough for life like that and um but my mother raised like three of us together so that that was a remarkable achievement for her and i'm truly grateful for that.
1: Politics was not something that was discussed around the house. Is that right? I mean, that you did not—that th- was not a topic at around the table.
2: Yeah. So when I was growing up, um, I would describe uh, the way that my my parents behave as having refugee mentality. So what they want is to have stability because they've been through extremely unstable time. And for them, they even e- even though they they know that there are problems in the society, they know that the government's ruling. The Chinese Communist Party is bad because they had been through uh, what, uh, what a poor government looked like, but they still do not intend to get involved in, in, in social movement or, or in politics because they think that that is not for them, that is dangerous, that yeah, is Yeah, they were, they were
1: afraid, isn't it fair to say?
2: Yes, yes. I, I think part of the reason is they're afraid. Um, they, they, they've been through a lot to come to Hong Kong and, and to try to live in a relatively stable situation. And they are afraid of their families, their children, getting persecuted by the government if they, they are speaking too loud. So that, that, that's the reason why we, we didn't really talk about politics. So
1: you were in a, uh, you were in a secondary school, a high, what would be, we would call a high school. And Lu Xiaobo was a uh, Chinese author and dissident. Uh, he had participated in the Tiananmen Square protests, and he uh, won the Nobel Prize. That was not celebrated at your school, was it?
2: My high school was a pro Beijing one. It was operated by the pro Beijing institution. I remember that I didn't really know much about Liu Xiaobo or about the advocacy work that he had committed in human rights or in freedom. But um, something happened uh, really made me very curious about all of these things. So on the next day of Liu Xiaobo getting his Nobel Peace Prize, our school's principals on the morning assembly, publicly criticising him. And by then I was curious because I learned that laureates of uh, Nobel Prize are the people who have been excellent in that field. So how come such a person being criticised? So I looked up for what he had done and that kind of opening up a gate for me to understand um, human rights situation in many China and all sorts of things. So that kind of like brainwashing education in an um, pro-Beijing school kind of backfired and made me more curious about the social affairs and, and what's happening around the world.
1: And you went on to university. Tell me how your activism unfolded at Lingnan University.
2: So when I entered the university, I was, I was with a thought of getting involved in social movement because I considered myself half an inter- intellect. And when I think that uh, when we were talking about political reform in that year, in the year 2014, I realized that um, there is a need for students who has always been the spearhead of change in society to be involved. So I ran for the student union and then eventually we became one of the leading organization in the uh, uh, democratic movement.
1: Yeah. At that time, uh, Beijing was promoting a law that would give it greater control over Hong Kong elections. This gave rise to the Umbrella Revolution of 2014. It went on for 79 days, mass civil disobedience. You mentioned your mom earlier. You were a leader of that movement. She did not know about your activism until she saw you on TV. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So um, it was actually uh, an interesting story. I didn't tell my mom that I was involved in all these social affairs or student union or, or movement because I knew that she would be really worried but eventually the way that he recognized that I was involved was uh, she was in a wedding boutique and she was chatting with her friends they were happy and by the time she looked up to the television she saw the scene of her son being arrested by plainclothes police simultaneously and she, she kind of shocked by what she saw and, and she immediately find my uh, friends, find my brothers to know what had happened on me. And that was the time she, she recognized that I am defaulting myself into uh, the movement, into the course. Um, and um, yeah, that, that, that was quite um, a, a remarkable story. What was your
1: discussion with her like when you finally got to talk about it?
2: was already in the middle of the umbrella movement when I had a chance to really talk to her. Um, by the time she met me, what she could say was just tell me, try to keep safe, try not to be intimidated or get injured when I was protesting. But of course, afterwards, um, she had told me, she had told me that, um, that to, that I, I should not. Be so high profile. I should not be involved in all these things. But by the time she recognized that um, she's not, she's unable to change my 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 devotion because I see it as my um my, my vocation. Um, she slowly um go to a more uh, 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 pacified uh position. Um, just just try to tell me to keep safe, but not really like discouraging me from doing so.
1: When you got together with the other leaders of the uh, umbrella movement, how much did you consider the potential risks of, of it? What kind of conversations did you have about that, about putting yourselves at risk, others at risk, and how Beijing might react to it?
2: Yeah, I think that is a really good question um, for a lot of us when we first discussed about um, being involved in politics, political movement, protesting on the streets. Of course, we had certain expectations what's coming to us but uh most of the time it, those are, are are not the precise protection. and um for example at the beginning when we were protesting we didn't realize that um at the end of the day that hong kong will become the shape that it is now like having a national security law people people's freedom of speech are being restricted and we first go to protest um of course for me i i I had preparation of being arrested, being charged, um being jailed, and that was what I had been through. I served jail time for more than two months. It is not a long non length of sentencing compared to the ones now, but the time like we we were in 2014 we expect months of imprisonment, but for now it's it is years even though you 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 do the same thing, so it's mm-hmm. always difficult to predict what uh Persecutions that are laying ahead of you, what you can do is uh, you just have to adjust y- yourself step by step. And um, by the time that you recognize you are bearing uh, the consequences and the persecution of the government, the only thing that you could do is to try to keep your mind calm and treat it normal mind. Otherwise, it, it's unbearable.
1: Yeah, what was that experience? Like, you, as you point out, you were in just for several months, mu- and I shouldn't say just, but you were in for. A few months in prison we should point out you know you're still young okay you're still quite young but you were 21 years old when this was happening how did you occupy yourself in prison how were you treated and uh, how if if at all did it change you
2: yeah so um in 2014 um the umbrella movement ended and in 2017 when i uh served the legislature uh, for more than 9 months i was unseated and then a month later after the dis- disqualification yeah. in 2017 august i was i was jailed um, because of my participation in the 2014 umbrella movement so it, it it took 3 years for the government to To put me in jail. Well,
1: let let me interrupt, Nathan, because I jumped ahead in the storytelling. And so (laughs) let's go back and because uh, there is a relationship, I suspect, between the fact that you got elected to the legislature there and the fact that these charges were brought after you got elected and as you say, disqualified. But let's go. There were a couple of middle steps. You ran for and were elected General Secretary of the Hong Kong Federation of Students. And that was a platform for you. And that, Elevated your status even more, and then with uh, Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow, you you started Demosisto, a, a party, yes. in a political party committed to democracy in Hong Kong. And so now you're 23, and you ran for the Legislative Council of Hong Kong, and you won. First of all, were you surprised that you had won, and how surprised do you think the authorities were
2: that you won? Well, the victory of my election was an underdog uh, story. So at first, when I found Demo sister with Joshua and Atlas, uh, we wanted to inject uh, the youth energy into the political scene because a lot of Hong Kong people criticized um, the, the traditional parties of becoming ageing and not reflecting what you, young protesters thinking in the ordinary political setting. So by then, we, we found a party together and we have incredible um, young members um, I think uh, in average the, the the age of the members were, were actually younger than I <laughs> by the time uh-huh. I was 23 so we, we, we consolidated um, a lot of um, activists um, but also some uh, 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 academia into our group and after that when I decided to run for the election it was um, the election took place in September 2016 and uh, a month before that uh, the first poor data came out. I was only having one percent of supporting rate. So we were running in. Um, I was running in a constituency that had uh, the highest education, the most wealthy one, uh, most aged one, and people consider um, uh, legislators from that constituencies as professionals. Um, those winners of the district. Uh, they were all lawyers, uh, ex-government officials, uh, respected uh, academia etc. So when I was running for um, those uh, f- six seats because it was proportional election, um, a month before I was um, unpopular, I guess people just felt like I was still an undergrad student. Um, I was a protest leader, but didn't know that I had the cap- capacity to talk about policies or have the experience or relative knowledge on um, um, bringing something that can be realized and meaningful to the, so- uh, to the, to the society. Um, but during that time, my campaign really hard. and I think what overturned uh, people's expectation and their thoughts about me were my performance in election uh, in the election forums, which we in our tradition we had. A couple of uh, the public forums organized by TV stations. And in that forum, I demonstrate a way of talking about policy, um, reasoning, and people felt like, oh, um, he was not um, someone that I imagined. Um, I guess um, those perceptions were overturned and subsequently um, supports um, consolidated. And I won the election uh, by having the second highest votes in 15 lists.
1: But what was that like for you when that happened? I mean, it must have been a hopeful moment.
2: Yeah, it was, it was quite unbelievable, actually, um, to have a sweep like that. And I think it, it really shows that Hong Kong people want fresh faces and, and they want people. Not only they, they can lead protesters, but, but they can also really talk about um, concrete policies and, and having... Uh, a strong weight of um, understanding of the society. So I guess that, that, that was uh, really an empower, empowering moment for all of us.
1: That was an empowering moment. And then, what was it, a month later that you were a month into your tenure or something, you were disqualified. And incredibly, I think I've got this right you were disqualified for quoting Gandhi at your swearing in, a quote of his you probably still still remember it, that was viewed as provocative.
2: Yes. So a month after the election victory, we had to sworn in and we had a tradition of adding phrases before and after the whole oath in order to demonstrate our political belief. Um, I had consulted with a legal opinion and I decided to add in uh, quotes from Gandhi and words to say that I, I am there to represent the people, to serve the people instead of a regime that brutally kills its people. So I made that very clear. And after the sw- swearing-in ceremony, um, the Chinese government didn't like the way that we, 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 we take our oath, and they decided to implement um, a political persecution on us. Um, the way that they do is they reinterpret our constitution, which uh, in advance countries, uh, the right of reinterpreting the constitution, of uh, defining the constitution, lies on the courts, uh, wh- whether it is Supreme Court or Constitutional Courts. But in our system, the right lies on the hands of the uh, National People's Congress Standing Committee, which those are the people who only think about things in political, um, political aspects, and they make decision to benefit the Chinese Communist Party instead of following Um, the rule of law. So they made a reinterpretation in order to add new requirements into the oath-taking ceremony and uh, considering those people who have said something before and after the the oath-taking ceremony as illegitimate when they interpret those things as um, insincere or not playing allegiance to the country. So I was seen as not playing the allegiance to the country in a very narrow, narrowly defined way. And after nine months that I served the council, I was affected. Uh, more than 50,000 ballots uh, from uh, the voters are tossed into the trash can.
1: The country to which you were being viewed as disloyal in reality was uh, the People's Republic of China. And you were viewed as dangerous on that legislative council. I think it's fair to say.
2: I think the the Chinese government just felt the heat. They didn't want so many uh, legislators in the council that severely challenged them and bring issues that make them uncomfortable. For example, issues of democracy, issue of uh, the rights of people uh, to de- design its future. Um, so that's why they, they had another round of political suppression by disqualifying legislators.
1: The news of your election was basically blacked out on the across China and. I'm sure that part of their concern was that democratic people who uh, have democratic aspirations in China might take inspiration or heart from your story. So you were an inconvenient story for them, and your movement was an inconvenient movement.
2: Well, definitely. Uh, the Chinese government has always been afraid of uh, the build out effect, which the movement in Hong Kong affects um, any parts of the people. or or the regions in mainland China. So they have had a huge internet firewall to block out all these informations and promote their own narrative, which stigmatizes all the democratic fighters and movement in Hong Kong.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now... Back to the show. How long after you were removed from the council were you arrested?
2: So um, one month after I was unseated, I got a verdict on court and I had to go to jail because of that. Just in a month, I was kind of like degraded from, uh, quote unquote, an honorable legislator to an inmate. Um, That was Actually, a huge blow for me. I, 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 I had a period of time that I had to adjust my, myself and, and just felt depressed because of that.
1: You quoted Gandhi. That's what allegedly got you into hot water. But, you know, Gandhi has been an example to freedom fighters and fighters for democracy for generations. Dr. King being an example of that. Did you study them? Were they examples to you?
2: Well, yes, definitely. I think the stories of of these great people are the things that supported my um, mental health, actually, when I was in jail. And when I was in jail, I read a lot of autobiography of these great civil rights leaders, democratic uh, fighters, because I want to learn how they can manage to go through all these much more torturing experience. Like Gandhi, he's been... He's been in, in jail for, for, for that case. Dr. King has been arrested for more than 30, 40 times. There were a lot of sufferings, but they managed to uphold their belief at the end of the day. So what triggered them? I think that was the answer that I want to have because I well compared to them, what I had suffered was minimal, but I had already felt difficulties of going through those experience, so I think it's important that I learn from them.
1: We talked earlier about your your mother. How did your family process all of this? From you, you, you talk about this incredible fall from being the honorable to being the inmate. Um, did, were you did Were you able to see your family? Did you communicate with them? And how did it impact on them? And
2: did they feel pressures? Yeah, when I was in jail, I could see my families once a week uh for 30 minutes. I remember whenever my mother visited me, um she pretends to be happy. She pretends to be like glad to 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 see it. Um, it's easy to to see to, to see through her disguise uh, because we we have been uh, living together for decades. And I and I learned that um from my friends um from her friends that She was so troubled by the fact that I was in prison. When she was doing cleaning duty for for people's home, she cut herself with a really deep wound. And I learned that from a friend of mine, and she didn't tell me when when she visited me. I just felt like it's difficult to balance everything. At first, I didn't know that it, it impacted her so much. And I realized that it's difficult to balance your duties in family and your duties in society when um, the society became so bad. And if you want to carry or, or shoulder the responsibility as an activist to go against injustice, then you must sacrifice your, the, the responsibility in family.
1: Knowing everything you, you know now, would you have done things differently, anything differently?
2: Well... I, I always feel like seeing things in a retrospective angle is, is difficult because um, for now, I have much more knowledge than the one that I m- made decision. But um, in a hindsight, no, I, I think everything I did was for my belief. I did without any consideration of personal interest. And that was uh, all that I could do. I, I devoted all of myself and my very best to the struggle of Hong Kong. Um, even though I ended up um, losing my seat, being imprisoned now in exile, never going to visit my, my family in Hong Kong as long as the Chinese Communist Party is there, um, even though it ended up like this, I, I still feel like I have done my part and I'm proud of it.
1: I want to get to where we are at this moment. You, you came to the U.S. You went to Yale uh, to pursue a master's degree in Asian studies. You testified before Congress on behalf of a a piece of legislation to try and pressure China to live up to the agreement it made with Britain uh, for a one-country, two-systems approach when Britain handed over Hong Kong. And then you returned to Hong Kong, and you were planning to run again, weren't you, uh, for the Legislative Council?
2: Yeah, in in March 2020, when I uh, finished my studies in the U.S. and I came back to Hong Kong, I I decided decided to run alongside with Joshua and other um, protest leaders um, for the election because there was supposedly an election in 2020. So that was my purpose of going back to Hong Kong. I want to continue to serve the people even though um, the, the council is so rigged and the re- election is so rigged. But we, wanted, we want to challenge that.
1: And in the midst of this... Uh a Beijing promoted an even tougher new security law with sixty-six articles that basically savaged uh, dissent, freedom of expression, a, a lot of the things that you uh, were fighting for. And with that law in place, they began arresting your your friends, your colleagues, your allies. You went into hiding. You feared for your safety. Talk about that period.
2: Two months before the implementation of the national security law, we heard about the government was going to propose a law like that. We didn't know about the details at at the beginning. But when the time goes in early or in mid-June, we finally knew that it was such a draconian law that um, our freedom of speech will be curtailed severely. Um, So at the end of June, I I had to think about what is my next move because I, I believe that it's important that we preserve a voice that could speak up for Hong Kong and to continue the international advocacy work, free from the threat of the national security law. So that was the main reason why I flee Hong Kong to London just before it was implemented.
1: How did you get out, given the fact that you guys were being hunted? H- how did you get out of uh, Hong Kong? Did you have difficulty getting out?
2: Well, when I was uh, trying to leave Hong Kong, uh, I had worries that whether my name was blacklist, whether they would block me from leaving in the airport. But um, eventually, it, it didn't happen, um, and I was lucky because I my passport was not confiscated. Uh, I was not arrested by the time because of protest-related cases. So that's why I could manage to leave. Um, and probably because for the past year, uh, for mo- most of the past year, I I was studying in the US, so I kind of like get out of the radar because of that. But eventually, uh, when I left. Um, we could really see the impact of the national security law uh, immediately after it was implemented. Uh, up until now, is almost a year, and uh, the police had made more than 100 arrests under the national security law. Some of, it, uh, some of the cases were uh, just because the arrestees chanted certain slogan, sang certain songs, display certain uh, lead flags or flags that has, uh certain political belief and uh, another lemma case uh, for the primary election 47 uh, democratic campaigners arrested us because they were hosting a primary election for their own camp and they were arrested under the national security law. So, um, by just observing those cases, you could really see that those vaguely defined national security law is used to become a legal weapon to prosecute democratic activists.
1: When you left Nathan, when that plane was taking off, did you think to yourself, I may never come back. I may never be able to see my family again. I may never be able to see my friends and allies again. I mean, that must have been an extraordinarily emotional time.
2: Yeah, it was extremely emotional. I, I remember that um, the exact day when I finished dinner with my family, I had a backpack and I had a hand carry with me, hand carry suitcase with me, and I departed to the airport. Um, I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't explain my decision because I was afraid that by the fact they they knew that I was leaving, they would be submitted uh, to government's prosecution. They would be arrested because they were colluding with me in government's time. So I, I, I didn't have any, have any opportunity to, to explain to them, to, to, to tell them how much I love them and to say a proper goodbye. And when I arrived at the airport, I was so nervous. And when I successfully boarded the, the plane and it was taxiing and it flew to the sky and I was sitting by the window and I looked back to Hong Kong um, as we all know Hong Kong has fantastic night feel yes it was like the most gorgeous night cityscape that I think uh, that you, you you have seen in the world and I was watching it and enjoy it and I was think I was thinking that that could probably be the last time that I could watch the city the city that I've been fighting for for, for, for past years that I served it that I jailed for it. That I was jailed for it. That was probably the last time I saw this fantastic night view. So that was really emotional. And and by the time I I realized that I had to embark a journey that I I don't really have knowledge about.
1: As you said, you you're you're working this from the outside now. There are your friends and colleagues on the ground there. First of all, your party's dissolved. Because it couldn't exist under the law as it was written, and you've had friends who, if you said gone to prison for years and not months, any sense of guilt about being on the outside and free? It, it sounds like, in a sense, you're in a prison of your own because you're separated from the people you love and care about. But do you feel in any way that you got the better half of the deal?
2: That that is always a sense of a survival guilt for me. It is not because I, I think that I have done anything wrong, but it's because that when I see my fellows who share the same same pursuit, same worries, share the same belief as I, but they have sacrificed a lot more than I. Uh, by the fact that they are in jail and I'm not, it's already a torturing idea for me to continue uh, to live like that. But on the other hand, it, it, it's just part of the emotion. Um, I, I see it as a process of how to transform these um, rather negative emotion into a positive one because I, I know that um, grieving myself doesn't help. But actively engaging into the political discussion to promote your stories and Hong Kong stories and to urge the world to adopt a more assertive approach to China these are the things that help, and it takes um, agency. It takes empowerment. It takes a lot of energy to do so. So I I, I create a term for that. Um, uh, I, I I describe it as fertilization, which you kind of bury your negative emotion and uh, let let the time goes, and then it becomes something that helps you to nurture better ideas, uh, nurture new life. Um, transforming something bad, um that emotion into positive energy and momentum I think this is just the lesson that every exile activist or, and, and, or, or anyone in the diaspora community have to go through
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files And now back to the show. How is life for you in London? And, and how much do you f- still f- feel hunted by China? Because you are leading now, you're, you're, you're leading a global movement or trying to ignite one that can't be welcome there. How much do you fear for yourself there? What's your life like? And, and I guess the other question is, like, how, how do you support yourself?
2: It's a really good question. Um, so my asylum application was granted in April. But before that, I had moved for four times because I was worried about my personal safety. I had been reframing myself from going out uh, or attending public events because uh, I was worried about Chinese agents or exponential activities. Um, We all understand how extensive these authoritarians' reach could be. And for me, um, being situated in a positions that um, actually had never taken place, uh, there had not been a prominent Hong Kong activist being in exile and also committing himself fully into the international advocacy work um, in the history. So that was a new role. And I don't know how the Chinese Communist Party would react to it. So I act very discreetly, but um, after, the, after I got the asylum status, I, I, I had more confidence in, in my personal safeties because I, I finally have a legal status in the UK and um, I became more active in terms of interacting with people and outreaching to community. So that, that I think it's just a path, is a trajectory that I, I have to go through.
1: Mm-hmm. And how, how do you support yourself? Uh, I mentioned you were at the, you were a fellow at my Institute of Politics in at yeah. the University of Chicago remotely. You're writing a book, I know. But how do you get along?
2: I write. Um, I have a, a subscription service for my political commentators. And I also write op-eds to, to newspapers. So I think it's important that we have to support ourselves. And also, we have to continue to deliver new thoughts and new understandings of the world to the people in Hong Kong and to the people around the world. Uh, A large part of my my work um, focuses on how to digest Hong Kong's situation and translate it into uh, a a format that uh, external audience are are more easy to digest and also digesting the, the, the global development of political dynamics into a perspective that uh, that Hong Kong people could see uh, how do these changes impact Hong Kong and impact China. So this is something that I, I, I am doing. And I think um, providing this knowledge and um, um, invigorating understanding and, and discussion on it is also important.
1: You had a close-up view of how the world leadership is thinking about China because the group of 7 was just in your neck of the woods there in London or near London to talk about their agenda. United States President Biden pushed hard for language that was harder on China than we've seen in the past, but still met with some resistance. And I'm wondering if you were satisfied with the language and do you think enough is being done to pressure China on Hong Kong on Taiwan, on the treatment of the Uyghurs, and human rights generally, do you think enough was done?
2: Well, I think um, the way of rebuilding the uh, transatlantic uh, relationship is uh, definitely a good sign on how we can consolidate efforts mm-hmm. on tackling the rise of uh, authoritarian expansion of China. And I think um, only by having coordinated actions from around the world, we could um, successfully curb their aggression and also hold them accountable. So I think for now, we're heading into the right direction. And uh, in the in G7S um, um, statement, uh, Hong Kong was mentioned, Taiwan was mentioned, Xinjiang was mentioned. These three issues are undoubtedly the most heated topics of uh, human rights violation in mainland China. And I think we just have to continue to put attention to it. Um, but eventually, uh, what I really want, uh, what I really hope is uh, these leaders to treat... Um, the global democratic recession as a genuine crisis. Um, they've been trying to deal in it with individual capacity, individual issues. Um, but if we are lacking coordination and a clear objective and goals of it, it's easy for the authoritarian countries like China to crack our collaboration and try to divide and conquer tactics in our alliance. Um, if we are still complacent towards uh, the expansion of these authoritarian regimes, we will lose gold opportunity to curb that i, I believe that uh we, we just have to see the global democratic recession as a crisis as the way we treat climate emergency as the way we treat po- poverty that we will have certain global goals we have institutions and bodies that helps to craft uh all the pol- policy we need and we have to implement it coordinatedly um so i think this is definitely the only way forward to stop Mm -hmm. um, Taiwanese from coming out again and uh, to stop people from being suppressed in those regions.
1: So China responded to the G7 communique by scrambling fighter jets over in Taiwanese airspace. Uh, And that was widely viewed as their message, which is we are not going to allow you to interfere in what we consider internal issues and uh, issues of strategic importance to uh, to us. What do you think it would take? And, you know, certainly President Biden, one of his fundamental messages was the one you are sharing here, which is there is a struggle going on between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, and only by working together can uh, the democracies of the world prevail. But what specific actions do you think would actually get the attention uh, of China in a way that would cause it to change its policies?
2: I think China has always been confident at least for the past five years in terms of their development and the trajectory and uh, the way that they despise um, the so-called Western values or the universal values make them so aggressive towards all these um, allegations and, and and all these concerns over his human rights violation. Um, this is definitely the way that they would act. No matter they are feeling the heat or they're just too confident, they are always going to tell the audience in mainland China that they are not going to listen to the to the West and they're going to go for their own path. But I, I believe that it doesn't mean that they they, they they don't feel the heat or they are not pressured because of the coordinated actions. Um, in China, there are lots of internal and external problems they're experiencing. That In an aging so- society, they are um, having struggle on industrial transformation. Um, there are social unrest because I'm um, very pressured a uh, working environment and, 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 and society culture. There are problems in rural and, and uh, conflicts in rural and developed areas they are also a regime that they have to tackle tackle a lot of problems because all of their legitimacy are resorted by nationalism and economic growth. And whenever there is a slow, massive slow in their economic growth, they need to resort to other paths to gain legitimacy. And that's why the increasingly extreme nationalism emerged. Um, But it has a cost because it's international um, um, isolation and also less reliance uh, of the other countries on China's production because of political pressure. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Its economy will only go worse when its extreme nationalism cultivates. Uh, And by the time there will be voids of resorting legitimacy from other pathways, it could be people's participation, it could be something else. Uh, we don't know yet. But by looking at China's situation in that lens, the only thing uh, that uh, the international community should do is to, to, to be uh, to, to be in solidarity. We have to continue to re- uh, decrease our reliance on China. We have to continue to put more scrutiny on their state enterprise into our countries. And, and the infiltration, the expansion of short power and uh, 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 soft power and also decrease any formal recognition to their regime, for example, um, stop diplomatic uh, delegation of uh, major events uh, when they're hosting. Um, I think these things could definitely contribute to a lot of the, a lot more doubts of their people to the regime. Well that, that's the way that we could trigger more, concerns from its people to its regime and and resorts are the pathway to legitimize it
1: you you mentioned a couple of of the the barriers one is uh, china uh, using its soft power they've been very aggressive their belt and road initiative and so on in in creating economic uh ties to countries around the world uh and they are a huge source of supply chains uh, to supply chains around uh, the world, you're saying that this has to change that, and, and that's difficult. These take time. They take investment. And, you know, China's argument is that the authoritarian model actually works better because it is agile. It isn't democracy is, is a lumbering process. Sometimes doesn't move fast enough, doesn't make the investments that are necessary and so on. There are tangible steps that the allies have to take. To actually produce the effects that you're talking about,
2: yes, definitely. But I think the perception has been changing. That just that there have been too much economic blackmailing, bullying from mainland in China that forced the countries to rethink their reliance on it. Norway, they were punished after they uh, 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 gave the uh, Nobel Peace Prize to, to to Liu Xiaobo. Australia, they're punished because they appeal for um a Uh. A, a thorough investigation on the origin of the uh, covid pandemic in Wuhan uh Canada they were punished because they had uh, arrested mamanjou uh the leaders or uh, one of the leaders of the of Huawei uh right. and an, a chinese enterprise that closely related to the chinese army uh there are so many examples of that and i think a lot of countries are just recognizing that if they are relying on uh, a, a region that all of its economic power can be politically weaponized there is a huge fragility of, of it.
1: We talked a little bit earlier about Taiwan. What is your level of concern that Taiwan could be that the crackdown in Hong Kong is a a, a predicate to more aggressive more and more aggressive action relative to Taiwan
2: at the beginning of the one country two system Deng Xiaoping says that it was actually. Setting an example for Taiwan, because uh, when there is a so-called peaceful reunification, Taiwan will also adopt the one country, two system of Hong Kong. Um, but throughout the years, uh, when we saw the protest movement in Hong Kong in 2019, uh, we immediately realized that one country, two system is not working for Taiwan. And in their presidential election, Taiwan won with a le- uh, with a large margin, and it was seen as Taiwanese people saying no to Chinese influence and, and 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 basically saying that it's impossible for us to to, to, to conduct any quote-unquote reunification uh, with you. So the last resort uh, of uh, the Chinese Communist Party would definitely go for military routes. And uh, there is an eagerness of doing so because Xi Jinping, uh, the, the, the regeneration of the nations, this project is heavily relying, relying on the narrative of a reunification. And uh, for Taiwanese people, they would see it as a, an annexation, And so we, we have come up to this point that there is an intention from the Chinese Communist Party that they wanted Taiwan. But in Taiwan, and uh, luckily... Unfortunately, the allies of uh, Korea, Japan and U.S. under the U.S. leadership says really loud that military intimidation to Taiwan is not acceptable. Um, So I think uh, the argument will continue. Um, China will uh, continue to harass Taiwan in whatever ways that they can. And to prove that Xi Jinping still wants to have a military conquer on Taiwan.
1: You spent time here in the United States, and obviously the United States is a pivotal player in all of what you're talking about in terms of you know, strengthening democracies, pushing back on autocracy. How closely did you monitor this last election in America, the, last four, the politics of the last four years, and particularly the events of January 6th in the United States, the insurrection at the Capitol? And what were your thoughts when you saw that?
2: Yes, I've been following it quite closely. Um, Definitely, I'm not an expert on it, but um, the political development of U.S. indeed shows um, certain worries about democracy, especially under the the age of um, social media, the echo chamber, the tribalized way of understanding reality, or even an annihilation of objective reality, loss of truth these are worrying signs for for, for democracy because uh, in democracy we need to we need to have deliberation we need to have discussion but what if all parts of the world have different understanding of the facts and truth there will be no meaningful discussion so I think this is uh, something that we definitely have to work on um, but I also see strength in democratic system especially after the uh, January general insurrection um, even though we've got such a disturbance into our legitimate democratic process, but we can see a rebound of the society uh, that uh, the transition was uh, at the end of the day relatively peaceful. Uh, it's it's difficult to say that it was smooth because there were so many uh, 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 um, so many incidents happening, but eventually it they they made it, and even though in this divisive politics uh, in these um, very turbulent times. Um, they still managed to have a transfer of power, which is the testing stone of uh, whether the, w- whether a system is democratic or not. And after the insurrection, there has been a lot of discussion, uh, discussion a lot of investigation. And I, I, I just feel like sometimes um, there are a lot of, well, in a society, that champion free speech we will listen to a lot of criticism perspective and opinion but at the end of the day the fact that we can listen to so diverse um, narrative and, and and opinion from people is already a blessing if some the same thing happens in mainland china they only have one media tone they only have one set of narrative if there are divergences they will all be immediately banned or screened out from publics sites so I just feel like is it well uh, for me uh, I think there is no perfect democratic system Uh, as David used that democracy is a project it's an ongoing process it's a, a, a process that we have to continue to refine it and new challenges emerging every day and that's the reason why I think protest is crucial for democratic society because protest is acting like a um, preemptive wronging to the society. Uh, when things go wrong, people come out to protest, and the government, if the government listens to us, then it could enhance its political system. That was a lesson learned also for me to, to watch through the, the development of the US politics for the past year.
1: Yeah. Well, Nathan, we uh, in America are about to mark uh, Independence Day, and I hope that people listen to this podcast and understand that democracy is, in fact, a project that people all over the world are sacrificing for what we have, and that it is worth fighting for and not taking for granted. And certainly, your life, your young life, not even thirty, is already a testament to that. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. And and you have a new book coming out, I think, in the fall that um, we'll all be reading with interest. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for being here and thank you for inspiring these young people at the Institute of Politics.
2: No, thank you. Thank you so much, David. It's my honor to be able to talk to you in this podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Alison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.